Hello, welcome to the Real Asian Backstory Podcast. I'm Aram Chuy Collier. I am uh, your host, and I'm uh, hosting solo for this episode. But we're doing a little revival of our road trip series, where we visit other uh, Asian American film festivals, Asian North American fe festivals, um, so you, uh, the audience, can get to know these folks a little bit. I'd like to introduce Brian from the San Diego Asian American Film Festival. Actually, Brian, can you introduce yourself, uh, your name, your title? Um, and how long you've been with the organization. Yeah, my name is Brian Hu. I have been the artistic director of the San Diego Asian Film Festival since 2011. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I guess that makes me, uh, you and I, like elder statesmen now. now I guess so, I guess so. Um, yeah, I mean, how did you get involved with San Diego? Back in the 2000s, uh, I was in grad school at UCLA, um, but I was also a journalist. Um, I was at a... What, what was then called an online magazine. <laughs> it was basically like, this is before we knew what like, like blogs were. <laughs> we just had a website and we put out like, every two weeks we put out an issue um, the way that magazines used to be. It was called Asia Pacific Arts. And I was the co-editor with Ada Seng, um, who I still work with today. And we were covering Asian and Asian American arts and entertainment. And it was really nice to do so from Los Angeles um, because this is where a lot of films were being released. Um, people like like Zhang Yimou and Gong Li would come to town. Stephen Chow would come to mm. Los Angeles to be on these junkets and nobody would cover them. Like these publicists mm. found a really hard time to find uh, like LA journalists to interview the director of Kung Fu Hustle. So we are like, oh, we're there. <laughs> and I get an hour with Stephen Chow or an wow, hour with amazing. like Chen Kai Gu and stuff. Uh, it was an amazing time. Um, this is before social media. Um, and, and so that was, so that was a thrill. Um, but part of it was, well, obviously we, all, we also really cared about Asian American media, which was kind of, it was new to me at the time. Um, my, my focus at that point was really on like just Chinese language media, but I really enjoyed attending Asian American film festivals, obviously, um, the LA Asian Pacific film festival, mm -hmm. uh, but we would take road trips up to cam fest then known as the san francisco international asian american film festival we'd all like squeeze four of us in a, like, in a one like a in, in a two-bed hotel room um but we'd also drive down to san diego it's only like an hour and a half down south uh, by car and i remember really enjoying the festival because i was able to see a lot of stuff from asia that was just not being shown in los angeles but i also remember writing really bad reviews of a lot of the films that were being played here <laughs> Uh, and I guess the uh, the organizers of the Asian Film Festival, um, the the late George Lin and the then executive director Leanne Kim, I guess they must have heard, like read my stuff because really like, nobody was. And tell me if I'm wrong. I don't think anybody else we was were writing like critical pieces about Asian American cinema. Hmm. Like even today, it's I so rarely see like, journalists say like, "Hey, like say something other than." It's great to be represented. Right? I yeah. want people to like watch these films and say like, actually, these these are these are badly made movies. <laughs> or yeah. there's um, a real void in that. I mean, you and Ada are doing some of that, but uh, there's a real void in that in that criticism in this space. Well, well, sure. I think it makes sense that there's a void because I think people are afraid to do it, not because they're not courageous as critics, but because they're afraid of knocking quote unquote our own community. Yeah, um, we got a lot of flack back then. Like I have emails from directors saying like how dare you do this to us <laughs> like, like what we we have it bad enough as it is and you're yeah. writing negative reviews about our films totally 
legitimate. Yeah, and there's certainly a lot of haters out there who 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 <laughs> will kind of make it a point to be you know snarky or whatever. But you know, but it also like it doesn't uplift the the, the craft at all if you if you're just yeah. saying everything is good, right? And and of course, this is before social media, so there were there were there was just less people doing takes um, <laughs> out there. I remember like one director wrote to me, he said what are you are you film comment magazine or something i'm like i would love to be film comment magazine <laughs> but, but it's like that's the way in which these these worlds have been separated yeah like the asian american circuit is here to support our own filmmakers outside of their outside of this this safe zone is maybe where you can find criticism whereas i've always felt like no we need criticism internally too anyway so i guess the folks at the San Diego Asian Film Festival were like, well, <laughs> if this guy's knocking our movies, maybe we should uh, hire him. Um, but like you and I both know that there's actually a lot of criticisms, criticism happening within the Asian American film world. It's happening at the film festivals in the programming rooms. Yeah. But this is actually where we feel the most liberty to be critical and and where we are actually, I mean, I hate to use the word, but sort of we're gatekeepers. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, this is this is maybe where these skills are useful, <laughs> or like where I could find a community of other programmers who want to have very critical conversations around these films. So I, I think that's how I um, was invited to join. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that's so interesting about that because you're right. Like in our programming team, like we discuss these things at length, right? And I I always struggle with that challenge because it's like you know when you get to festival time, you're trying to support these films, you're trying to get people interested in them, and uh, you know you're trying to uh, another word that you hate to use, sell it, you know, to an audience, right? And and that is not necessarily. Uh, always the best place for a, a critical conversation, right? And and also, you know, to me, it's also like a critical conversation doesn't mean it's bad, right? It just right. means a, an in-depth conversation. And that's what, you know, I'm trying to cultivate uh, and we try to cultivate is have those conversations because audiences are having those conversations, right? And so, uh, and filmmakers do as well, and they should because that uplifts uplifts the craft and um so it's just frustrating you know and and for myself you know um having been out on the circuit with my own films it's like you know it's at a certain point you get you get pretty frustrated with the 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 kind of base uh questions that you get and it's like no i'd actually love to talk about my film right i'd love to hear what you actually think i'd love to hear your question of something that you didn't like right and i can tell you my rationale right um whether it was you know limitations of of this kind or lack of imagination you know (laughs) on another on another scale right because i think that's all fair game and if you're a filmmaker you know you're kind of asking for the smoke right so i think it's all kind of like fair as long as it's respectful of course but uh i mean that's always one of the things i i really loved about um every year you know looking at your program in san diego is like you have such a wide range of um types of films and you know you have really great categories but you know one one thing that's interesting is that um to hear you say that you got into it um you know some festivals will only do asian american films uh but you do you do both you do international as well and and as as do we here but um i mean i guess that was something that that predated you but uh had had some of uh you know was aligned with your interests so i mean how how do you how do you view that as a festival well, and there's a very pragmatic part, which is 
we're just not that big of an Asian American community here in San Diego. <laughs> and, and so we're just, we're trying to bring together as many uh, intersecting like-minded people as possible, including people who are just like, I want to know what's happening politically in Vietnam, which might mm-hmm. intersect something with people who are interested in refugees in the United States or something. Right. Um, so we don't want to kind of like build walls to, too too tightly if like if we can't sustain a smaller kind of uh, pool. I mean, like first of all, Asian America is so transnational, right? Like mm-hmm. um, not just in terms of the experiences of the, like Asian Americans, that in the fact that we, um, especially in the post nineteen sixty five generation generations, like we kind of go back and forth. But, um, but now, like like media is so transnational. Like you have Asian yeah. Americans who are consuming K pop, who watch Bollywood films, um, and and that their cultural diet um, is comes a lot of it derives from Asia. In fact, a lot of times the kind of sense of empowerment comes from Asia, and especially now when there's so much of an issue about authenticity, right? Um, that even though we all like, I, like I grew up with hip hop, right? <laughs> like, like the issues of appropriation are very real now and who has the right to kind of like, um, kind of speak in different vernaculars that might not be from your own like families and stuff. And, and so, but so maybe Asia becomes a, a realm in which Asian Americans feel more comfortable, not necessarily appropriating, but like thinking about their relationships with mm-hmm. and how better for them to be exposed to that than to like bring all of these media together. Um, so that's what, another way in which we see it's important to do both. Also, works from Asia are really good. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and there was a generation of Asian American filmmakers who were just so inspired by, say, Wong Kar Wai. Yeah. And to the point where it became a cliche, like you just saw Asian American filmmakers just really doing those kinds of like smudgy effects on the screen <laughs> of editing and such, yeah. um, like repeating pop songs or something. Um, or, or like, you know, John Woo ripoff kind of movies. And yeah, you know, yeah. I, I think that's great um, because they're looking for inspiration outside of Hollywood, even if it is kind of mainstream stuff from, from Asia. I, I love it when... Like I, I'm like watching Asian American film, thinking you're just ripping off Edward Yang. I'm like, that's mm. great that you're ripping off Edward <laughs> Yang. Like, you're an Asian American filmmaker who's who who has aspirations to be a Pichapong receptacle. I mean, like, I, that's that's so exciting to me that everybody just trying to be Wang Fu Productions or just yeah. trying to be Wayne Wang. I mean, I, I mean, they're so important, but um, their worldview is potentially limited. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I'm some, I'm kind of on that i mean and i'm interested what you're saying about that you used to be in la i mean you know i'm also interested in san diego as this place that is so close to la but kind of apart from it like how do you as a festival and also you know as an artistic director like how do you kind of navigate that that orbit and that kind of gravity that la and not only just la entertainment but also the asian american scene in la that is so linked to that entertainment industry like how do you how do you navigate that that gravity of that yeah well i mean we take advantage of our vicinity our relative vicinity in that we can expect a lot of filmmakers to be at our festival so that's why we invest so much in our guest services um like like not in terms of bringing people out because i assume i assume people can drive down from la um or especially like you know maybe we can bring out the the director of a feature film but if their entire cast and crew wants to drive down from la on their own dime like they're it's, it's not difficult for them yeah it's not a big ask right yeah um yeah. and so we, we capitalize on that by creating a bit of a party atmosphere or trying to have a, a, a party atmosphere because we want this and not just because we're 
doing a festival to party, but because this is a celebration. Uh, so we have this big gala, we have after parties, um, we have happy hours, and, and and opportunities for filmmakers to to intersect, not necessarily on a panel or on a like formal networking, um, because I feel like LA filmmakers do this all the time, where they they, they have there are better ways to do that in LA. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas I like us being a kind of casual place for filmmakers to intersect here, casual slash like like you know just letting your guard down, right? There's nobody here who's um, watching to make sure you're saying the right thing necessarily. Whenever I go to screening at the LA Asian Pacific Film Festival, and I, and I love those screenings because they're so high energy, but you do get a sense that the people in the audience, a lot of them are like friends and family of the filmmakers, um, and there, there's a good reason that that needs to exist so people mm-hmm. can like see like, oh, you've been working on this for so long. I finally finally want to see it. As a filmmaker, you probably speak about your film differently when that's your audience. Um, Or your expectations about how a movie plays is different when it's friends and family. Or you're surrounded by other industry people, right? And then so maybe um, potential collaborators, um, people whose bridges bridges you burned, uh, whatever (laughs) it might be, right? And and so maybe like you're on a, like you speak differently in that kind of space as well maybe the more press there. Um, our audience is, this is the Comic-Con audience, like San Diego. Um, yeah. We're here because we're fans. I feel like what we can bring is to show these filmmakers that you have fans. It's not just that you have supporters. You have people who want to watch your films because they read the description and that sounds mm-hmm. like something they want to watch and they want to pay mm-hmm. money to go watch. Um, and so um, it's close enough to LA that we could take advantage of the mass of folks who are coming down and we want to show, we show them a good time and then we, get, and we give them opportunities to intersect with each other but really like we I, what I find kind of like adorable about our audience is that we just want to see movies yeah no it's it's so interesting to you know I, I have been able to have the the good fortune of attending the festival and um, it was really really great vibes and and so interesting to hear that you have like this kind of kind of unique audience niche um, I remember also too you 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 telling me once about how how much kind of education is really uh, an important part of your programming perspective, and I, I'm just wondering if you could uh, expand on that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, this is also probably related to the fact that I'm an educator. Like that's my full time job, and specifically, like I teach film studies, and I don't really see a line between like what I do at a film festival and what I do in a classroom. I mean, like it's a different audience, obviously. My goal is to, to get people excited about movies and to know more about where they come from and to appreciate them. I so often find our members who come to me who say like, I learned so much at your festival. Mm. I don't think they came to learn, but that's, that was a byproduct of them being here. And I think this is a responsibility because these films require some contextualization because yeah. if they didn't, you probably could just sell them at the local art house theater, right? Like where, like no context, people understand why they want to watch this. They know what they're going to get out of it and they know how to appreciate it. But so often say a film from like a a new Malaysian film or something, right? Like it helps to put a little bit of context of like what's been going on in Malaysian cinema the last few years. So the education happens on the program notes writing. And we spend a lot of time crafting these program notes. And even for our our programming team, like we have a whole kind of like uh, guide to program notes writing. And then for our introductions, our Q and A's, to some extent, they're also there to 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 jazz up the audience, right? Like uh, I heard the organizers of the Black Star Film Festival talk about how um, introductions to film festival screenings are like you're basically you're, you're an MC, mm-hmm. um, and and so I, I've really thought about that too, and how that that is the role. But then it's also like how to use that that platform as a way to 
um, to educate, to enrich this experience. All of which goes back to like, what, what do festivals do that say um, Netflix doesn't do or streaming services don't do, or even what the, the like, commercial distribution doesn't do, right? And, and that is that kind of contextualization. I'm curious, do you have an example of how, you, how you've hyped up a crowd? Because, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I, you know, like we'd have to do intros all the time, right? And uh, so I, I'm, I'm curious to get some pro tips. Um, I mean, I, we don't have like a stock way of hyping up. I, mean, um, I remember our, our former marketing director, um, is, his name is Dan Matthews. Uh, he's also a rapper that goes by AKA Dan. And he hypes up the audience right? because he's that he's literally like he's an MC. We have this like story of him doing like one of his, his classic Dan, like hyping up intros for treeless mountain <laughs> like, like a somber <laughs> art film so it has to be appropriate to the tone of the film this might also be like what i'd have to do in a classroom because in a classroom you have students who are they did not pay to come to this they didn't read the description of the movie before they arrived to class it's not necessarily about hyping but just about sparking curiosity um and and, and maybe like sparking a few Things for people to look out for, and so like so sort of getting in the mood of the movie. I feel like that's yeah. also responsibility to the artist to that we are um, setting them up appropriately. I've, I've gone to plenty of film festivals that don't do that, and the audiences end up like hating the movie, and mm. that that to me would be a, a huge dis, um, irresponsibility if we did yeah. that. I always uh, find it hard, especially for the the kind of more somber and serious movies, uh, like really trying to get people in the mood. But uh, but it's it's really important to, you know, to set the context of that. You know, both the viewing experience and and the kind of information. You know, you yeah, you mentioned kind of um, education, more like small, like lowercase e, kind of like, and not like the kind that you're getting at university or you're you know applying to grants for. Um, you know, one thing that I also wanted to talk to you about in addition to the film festival is you've really done a lot uh, in the last few years, especially about kind of um, chronicling Asian American cinema, uh, historicizing it. Um, you and Chi Wei Yang, who a longtime programmer uh, in San Francisco, um, did a little bit of work with us at Real Asian. You recently came out with a Criterion Channel collection uh, that I'd like you to talk about. And then a few years earlier, you did a, a kind of like a top 20 list of, uh, of, of the 21st century so far, I think, right? So maybe if you could just quickly talk about both of these kind of, uh, these, these kind of endeavors. Yeah, that top twenty list already seems so dated. That was in two thousand nineteen. Yeah, a lot has happened since right? twenty nineteen. <laughs> yeah, um, which is a good thing. So I guess um, that that was LA Times project. I just reached out to my, like my contacts at the LA Times to say like, "Hey, do you want to do a, a a very kind of curated top twenty list of Asian American cinema?" Um, the hope being that. I mean, like everybody makes lists now. Like that's the easiest thing you could do online. Um, top top 100 Asian American films, like top 10 Asian American films. And it's the same films on those lists all the time. And sometimes for good reason, because these are you know, canonical films. But sometimes I'm looking at it thinking, I don't think you've seen that many movies. <laughs> I think that uh, these are just the ones that you know or that you Googled right now. And because I think you and I both know that like a lot of films, even from like 2002 or something, right? Great films that played the Asian American Film Festival circuit. Not only do we not know about it, if you Googled it, it wouldn't even come up yeah. really, right? Um, like for instance, I don't know if you remember like this documentary 
film called And Thereafter. There was oh, like yeah. And Thereafter yeah. 1 and Thereafter 2. It's impossible to find these movies. Yeah. Um, and they are indeed some of the best, like, like most powerful Asian American documentaries from that period. But how is somebody who's just been tasked to write a top 10 list for, I don't know, Time Magazine or something, how, how do we expect them to, come to, to know about that movie? I mean, I hate I, the notion of a canon. But I felt like at this moment, a canon, at least a a performative canon was necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, a performative uh, like authority. Um, God, I, I did hate these words. Um, <laughs> but I just knew, but I do know that there are people who've been around who I want to know what they think um, is a canon. So these are programmers, critics, people who I know have been watching Asian American films since 2000 or so and like who people who'd be pretty honest <laughs> about mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. what they would leave off such a list and so i'm really proud of the results because it is so different than some of the other lists yeah. that we see out there there's definitely some surprises on the list you know it, it, within the top 20 and i also loved that you you know you also listed the kind of down ballot votes as well which are also you know really notable a lot of them and you'd be like oh yeah that film oh yeah that film you know like yeah they may not have made the top 20 but but super like, you know, some really interesting, incredible uh, films, uh, some ones I didn't like, I don't agree with, you know, those kinds yeah. of things, right? I credit the LA Times editorial team for including the the films, that, the, all films that got votes. Um, mm-hmm. Because like you said, like that's where the interesting stuff is. And a lot of them you would you disagree with, but that, that those are the conversations that are, are worth having. Um, yeah. And like somebody put "Crush the Skull" right, like on their top twenty list, uh, and and that, that so that is on our our secondary list. Yeah, um, that's actually where I hope people start to give a try to a lot of these movies. So that came from a point of so much attention being put on crazy rich Asians as being mm-hmm. some kind of like this is this is where we begin. We know there was something before called Joy Luck Club, <laughs> um, <laughs> but we don't really want to be bothered to figure out what else there was. The newspapers, magazines. They were at first talking about it as, oh, this is the first since Joy Luck Club. And then they, they quickly backpedaled, but they didn't know where to go from there. So mm-hmm. we wanted to give a resource to people who are like, actually, if you want to know where to go from here, this is a starting point. I feel like that's still important. Uh, everyone's talking about now as such as like interesting moment for Asian American cinema. And I'm really excited to see like if this goes anywhere. More than ever, I'm, I'm optimistic. <laughs> I, used to, I used to always be so pessimistic about this. Um, and so... That was like a, a canonization project. The, the Criterion project was a little bit different because it was about a moment. It was about the 2000s. Um, mm-hmm. The and aughts, right? The aughts, right? Like yeah. 2000 to 2009. Because even when I was doing the um, LA Times poll, I did notice that yeah, it was there was a little bit of a possi- possibly a recency bias, like films mm. from 2010 to 2019, because more people were likely to have seen those movies. But Chiwe and I were just like, we came of age in those odds, in the odds of like this is where this is where we learned to love Asian American cinema, watching films like Journey from the Fall and Call Mother Musical, yeah, uh, yeah. Refugee. So it wasn't just that we're nostalgic; it's that we note that there is something special happening at that moment. Feature narrative filmmaking seemed to be catching on as a possibility. If you are a Asian American filmmaker before 1997, you'd just be like, no, I just make short films. I make experimental films. I'm like too daring and queer and weird for the, any kind of any mainstream. But suddenly like after 1997 and certainly after Better Luck Tomorrow in 2002, there was a sense that, hey, like we could we can monetize this. <laughs> we we yeah, can get yeah, funding yeah. for this. Yeah. There's an audience out there. We just have to. But, but it was at this moment where it's like we could find an audience, but we have to build it ourselves. A24 is not going to build it for us. We're going to have to go on the road. We're going to have to sell it like theater by theater, city by city, 
campus by campus, which is really mm-hmm. important at that time. And of course, the Asian American Film Festival circuit was so important in that because, yeah, you're going. That's really where you're where you're getting the energy. You're, you're you're finding audiences who know kind of what they're in for, and then you're also meeting other Asian American filmmakers who are on the same kind of uh, ridiculous project you're on. Right? Like, yeah, we yeah. think we can do this, and so even today, like you see filmmakers who. I think they probably met each other on the circuit, right? Um, if if Tanush Chopra and Lin Chen worked together, I assume it's because of the Asian American Film Festival circuit that they 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 met each other. And so Chi Wei and I identified this as an important time, kind of industry wise, but also culturally, right? Like this is post nine eleven. We don't talk about this enough, but like this is when that generation of say like Vietnamese American um, filmmakers like. Uh, that first generation who are going to film school and who are realizing who they can be as artists. Um, and and a lot of filmmakers, actually, not just Vietnamese American ones, but um, for the Vietnamese American community, I feel like that's, that was, this, this is their, this is their first moment. Yeah. So it was, it was an exciting time. And mm-hmm. I think it's so important for us to think about that now because so much of the, the, the incentives of Asian American filmmakers are to be Minari or yeah. to be the farewell. But there are other possibilities and we saw them back when people were like, let's just make a musical at home with no budget, <laughs> right? Like come with a musical exists. Yeah. Or like we have nothing, but somehow our community demands that we make an epic film about our history, like Journey from the Fall. Yeah. They've made that happen with that yeah. outside of the studio system. So the Criterion program was a way to um, highlight that specific moment. The other part for me, I don't know if, I, if I'm speaking on Chiwei for this, but like this is the Criterion channel, right? Like, like this, we're introducing these films to a brand new audience, including Asian Americans who are cinephiles who may not care about the Asian American circuit. Because that was me back yeah. in like 2001 or something. Like I saw myself first as like, I'm going to go, I'm going to see what won the Cannes Film Festival. And I wanted to kind of insert Asian American films as part of the conversation about what cinephiles care about. Because I, I do very much think that Roddy Bogawa's films, um, that Diane Boucher's films can be appreciated in in that circuit. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been obsessively just going on the letterbox pages of all of these films and like seeing how cinephiles are talking about them. It's, <laughs> and it's really exciting. And it, partly because they're critiquing these movies, right? Like they're saying bad things about the films, kind of the same way that we would say about these films. But I mean, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't slam these films. They would say like, uh, like the pacing is kind of off about this movie, but I really appreciate what the filmmaker is aspiring to. Because mm-hmm. that's kind of how programmers think. That's kind of how we were thinking as critics. Yeah. I, I think this is happening in the cinephile world more than it is in the Asian American film festival circuit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I it, it's it's been really cool to see um uh you you do these projects and then also uh my site was lined with visions, uh the folks out at um New York who did a kind of a series on on the '90s, '90s Asian American cinema, and and you've also been doing some some kind of uh, revivals of some '80s '80s Asian American films too. So I mean, just taking all together, I mean, you know, what what has uh, what do you feel like the the response has been, or what have you and what have you learned from from this process too? I mean, I love whenever I, I read online something like I I've been waiting so long to watch this movie because we recognize that. Even films from like 2003, which doesn't sound that long ago, are impossible to find now. These days, if people can't find them on streaming, the movie basically doesn't exist. Yeah. It's how to get it back in the consciousness. So Criterion Channel being a streaming service is one way to do that. These lists are one way to say like, let's just name it. Let's just say mm-hmm. these films exist so that they're part of the conversation again. Kudos to say 
the Criterion Collection um, and other folks who are now saying like, hey, maybe we should do restorations of Who Killed Vincent Chin or Chan is Missing or something. So at, a, at our film festival, I find it very important that if there is a new restoration of an Asian American film that, um, and especially a film that's like has historical importance, let's play it. So we did a screening of Eat a Bowl of Tea, uh, mm-hmm. a new restoration of it, and it sold out. And we were, oh, wow. we were kind of surprised by that. Of course, last year when we did a restoration, like a new brand new 4K restoration of John Mortsugu's Terminal USA, it was not well um, attended. <laughs> so, so maybe it's not, maybe people aren't excited about restoration alone. Um, maybe it's the, the film still matters and maybe like it's still kind of star power or something. When you did eat a bowl of tea, like what kind of people were showing up to that? It was older folks. I mean, like, Russell Long fans. Russell Wong fans, yeah, yeah. yeah. I want to see him eat the watermelon again. Right? Yeah. <laughs> but I, I think it's also like, I would imagine that older generation is kind of like, I wish Asian American filmmakers made films like they used to. Mm. <laughs> like, like the Wayne Wink kind of style films. And also for me, just like watching it on the big screen, this new restoration, it's like, wow, like I I had no idea this movie could look like that. Today, like we're so used to things on 4K and like Blu-rays that like, I want Asian American cinema to sparkle the way that like that new 4K UHD disc of, I don't know, Ghostbusters or something like sparkles. <laughs> um, because our history matters too. And yeah. I, do, I don't trust these distributors who bought these films 20 years ago to care about them now. I, oh, and I frankly don't not. care about like Netflix to care about these films. So yeah. Yeah, say someone's putting in thousands of dollars to do a restoration, like how, who's going to show it? Like, we have to show it. The same way that we have to be the ones to show new films. I think that we, if we care about older Asian American cinema, we have to be the ones to spearhead the finding audiences for old films as well. It's incredible work. And, you know, as as somebody who worked on one of those films that was on the on on the list, it's like much appreciated that you, <laughs> you know, remounted it, remounted Refugee. And that was really, really awesome to hear that you were doing that. And, you know, um, you know, we were a little bit up here. We were kind of like, where's the Canadian stuff? Uh, you know, <laughs> but hey, it's fair enough. You got you got one country. To, uh, it, it has enough content to uh, to cover. And hey, that's our work that we have to do too. So, <laughs> you know, I don't want to keep you too much longer, but I do have a couple uh, more things. Tell us a little bit. I mean, it's kind of along the lines of this kind of uh, kind of historicization. You mentioned Ada saying before you um, you two host a, a great podcast where you kind of uh, look back at a lot of uh, uh, important films, and you've had several seasons. Can you talk about the Saturday Saturday School podcast? Yeah, we were covering Asian American film in the 2000s. Again, exactly this period that we're talking about with the Criterion Channel. Thinking like, how come nobody knows about these movies anymore? And then, I mean, we're realistic about it. There's, there are reasons people don't know about it. Like, it's not they're not being talked about. There's a lack of that kind of canonization that we're referring to, and these films aren't available. Kind of in a tongue-in-cheek sort of way, we're like, all right, we're going to assign these films to to our <laughs> listeners. We even um, thought about it as a syllabus. At some point, we, I think got lazy for, <laughs> to do that but um and also because we knew that we could say hey next week go watch refugee but how's anybody gonna go watch refugee <laughs> right um, i mean now now it's on the criterion channel but before then like we will always joke like at the end of every episode all right if you want to watch this movie go to your local university library and then try to get access so this is also like kind of our running joke which is a reminder that these films are rare um and we bring a certain kind of enthusiasm. We're hyping these films up in hopes that now somebody out there is going to seek them out. And hopefully anybody who listens to our podcast would never think that Asian American cinema began with Crazy Rich Asians or something. And I think in the beginning, we didn't know how long we could do this for because 
even we were like, how many Asian American films in the past can we um, can we find? But what I, the, my favorite part of this process is actually not being nostalgic for films we watched 15 years ago. It's actually learning about films I'd never even heard of before. Hmm. So for instance, right now we're doing a season on Asian American science fiction films. When we first put, were putting together a season, I just thought, all right, well, it's advantageous. <laughs> like we just, there's yeah. like, there's that film advantageous by Jennifer Pong. Yeah, that's um, what I came up with when you said that. Right, right. It's like oh, yeah, um, prior to like everything, everywhere, all at once and after Yang, like they would have been that. But what I loved about this is it's really challenged me to think about things that are sort of sci-fi-ish that we just never thought about in that category. So Shirley Chang's Fresh Kill. Um, it just forced me to do the work. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I, I found that Peter Wong, who's best known for making a film called The Great Wall in the mid 80s. And that was a film that was like, it was well received. It played art house theaters. He followed that up with this bizarre sci-fi film called Laser Man, which is, it's only ever been on VHS. Um, <laughs> I found it, I, I torrented it, basically. <laughs> I hadn't even heard of this movie, but it's so strange. It's like strange in a way that's like, who would give an Asian American filmmaker this much leash to be weird? Like even today, I mean, the Daniels, like I, they, they've done this today, yeah. but like this is the this is the original everything everywhere all at once. It's not it's it's pretty it's, it's not a good movie, but it's so fascinating to see like what they were daring to do. Mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of Asian American filmmakers are so calculating now about like what is it going to take to make myself to appeal myself to to for my next film, right? Like yeah. to, so that I can win awards or that I can yeah. be noticed so I can like direct an HBO episode. Yeah. Like Laser Man is not made by anybody who <laughs> who cares at all about what people think about them. Um, being able to find these kinds of things in in the vaults, um, and sometimes it's literal vaults. Like we, I, I'm so lucky that I have access to the San Diego Asian Film Festival's DVD collection of films that were submitted to us or that we played, mm-hmm. films that we rejected that we still have, we've kept. Mm-hmm. Um, and so being able to pull out those, those films, um, that's been a huge joy. And if we can just um, let our audience feel a little bit of our joy in discovery then we've done our job yeah yeah well we'll put we'll put a link uh to that in the show notes along with uh also the criterion collection and also um the the la times article um can you tell us uh uh what are the dates uh website where where can people find more information about san diego asian film festival yeah, so uh, San Diego Asian Film Festival is put on by a nonprofit called Pacific Arts Movement. So Pacific Arts Movement has all the usual social media um, presences on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. So if you search, I think we're Pack Arts Movement on most of those. Um, but if you search Pacific Arts Movement, you'll find out how to follow us or sign up for our mailing list. Um, otherwise, our film festival comes around uh, in November. Um, Probably very, kind of probably overlapping with uh, yeah, the Toronto yeah, Asian, it's, it's Asian to, Film Festival this year. Yeah, um, but if you if you live in Southern California, we definitely invite you to come down and, and celebrate and party and, and and with us and like speak excited about these movies, see them on the big screen. Uh, we're probably going to be November third to the twelfth this year, and we will be announcing our lineup in you know, mid October. Okay, all right, so people can check that out and. Um, too late to submit this year, but submit in the future, probably. Um, okay, and now this is our, our final uh, question. Um, we always save it to the end, all, all of our guests. Uh, it's something my my normal co-host, uh, Kelly Loy, like we argue about this all the time. So you can only choose one. You can only choose one. Uh, rice, noodles, bread, or potatoes? Yeah, 
I if you ask me again tomorrow, it would be different probably. But as of right now, I'm I'm gonna go with rice. Yes. Um, I mean, it's either rice or noodles. Yeah. Um, I mean, but bread could also be like tortillas, uh, you know, that kind of yeah, stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I, just... I love bread and potatoes. Like, no, no knock on them, but rice and noodles have a special place in my heart. Um, <laughs> I, I, I guess the reason I decided to go with rice today is thinking about it's important to Indian food, which is, and mm. also it's important yes. to me. A lot of people cited biryani as, uh, as their main reason for picking right. rice. And just like how much of the world consumes rice that I don't want to cut that out, including like Mexican food, um, like, like food from South America. Nope. Um, so really this is not about which I like more, but that I just don't want to cut out too many cuisines that I can't live without. So I'm okay. going rice. All right. Well, I'm I'm happy you did. Uh, you know, it's okay if you change. Uh, Kelly will be very disappointed. But um, since you brought it up, uh, so uh, rice in a burrito is something <laughs> that is uh, common in uh, San Francisco, where I'm from. Right. The the kind of mission burrito that people are familiar with now because of Chipotle, blah blah blah. <laughs> but but San Diego uh, is known for put instead of rice, you can you can opt for French fries. So uh, what's your thoughts on that? Okay, so I'm gonna get in trouble. Um, <laughs> I'm not a fan of the French fries in the burrito. It's called it's called the California burrito, but I've only ever seen it in San Diego. Yeah, so yeah. I, I'm from LA, and I spent a lot of time in the Bay Area. Um, so it was very strange for me to come down to San Diego ten year ten plus years ago and and experience this. Um, I guess it has to do with how crunchy the potato still is because i don't like it too soggy in there because if it's you know oh, like yeah. if you bite into a burrito it's still a bit of a crunch that's exciting like i'm yeah i'm, I'm down with that um carne asada plus potatoes is a bit much <laughs> but that's that's how they do it down here i will say like I, I came to love the san diego like it's it's just meat in a tube it's just like <laughs> like yeah all pastor, maybe some guacamole, a little bit of pico de gallo, and otherwise that that's it. Yeah. And so after having had that for a few years, I was starting to doubt my like like did I ever really like rice and beans in a burrito? Get out of here! That's just taking up space. And then I went to the mission, and I yeah. had a true mission burrito. And I gotta say, my favorite burritos I've ever had were probably in the mission. But I would rather have an everyday San Diego burrito, just a regular San Diego meat in a tube. Um, but yeah, the mission stuff is ah, so good. Gourmet. Oh, I mean, you can't go wrong with either. You know, if you get right. some quality meat in a in a nice fresh tortilla, uh, you know, uh, you can't beat that. I, I mean, I love the rice and beans, but uh, uh, compared to what I can get here, I'll take any of it from <laughs> California. <laughs> Sorry, Toronto. Sorry, Canada. Uh, it's true. I'm really hungry um, now. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, no, this was great. Thanks. Thanks so much, Brian. And um, thanks for coming on Backstory Podcast. And um, we'll be in touch more. And hopefully uh, people use this as an opportunity to learn more about San Diego Asian Film Festival and all the other work that you've done and check out the Criterion channel, the podcast and everything like that. So thanks again. Thank you. 